Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Well, friends, I'm very grateful to have this opportunity tonight to preach uh, on this Feast of St. Lucy and also just... um, I don't know, I, I, I want to offer a little bit of an extended meditation, a little longer than average homily, if you can bear it, right? If you can bear it. It's, it's, uh, since we don't have a speaker tonight, I'll be your speaker tonight. Sound good? It's, al- it's always music to my ears as a preacher when, uh, when, I'm, when I'm told, Father, you can go a little bit longer tonight if you want. So, settle in, settle in. So we're about the halfway point now of Advent, and... Uh, this is a good gut check, right where we're at, right where we're at, to kind of look at um, kind of how we're doing and, and the providence of the Lord giving us uh, St. Lucy to reflect on tonight. She's, in many ways, she's been my girl since I was in eighth grade, even long before my own conversion to the faith that happened when I was in high school, my junior year of high school. I, um, some of you know, some of you maybe don't know, but I've been dealing with an autoimmune eye disease since I was in seventh grade. I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm up to about 31 eye surgeries now, um, which is a bad hobby to have, having eye surgeries. But uh, St. Lucy has been there for me through all of that, through uh, many ups and downs, and, and I've had prayer cards of St. Lucy and just called upon her intercession for a lot of very scary and difficult moments. Those of you who don't know her story, she was an early church martyr. Um, and she's the patroness of eyes and people with eye diseases, eye maladies, and blindness and all those things because she suffered under the Diocletian persecution and um, because she wouldn't give herself away because she'd already given herself to the Lord, she was tortured tremendously before her martyrdom and her eyes were gouged out of her head, which is why you'll see her holding a platter with her eyeballs on them. It's pretty metal. It's pretty intense. So she's my girl for all those things. So kind of taking her, taking that as a jumping off point tonight, I, I want to speak tonight about vision. I want to speak about vision, our sight, how we see things, in particular, how we are seeing things these Advent days. How do we see Advent? How do we see, how do we envision Christmas? So our understanding of Christmas, our vision of these days, it, it evolves, it changes throughout the course of our life. Like it's, it's, there's an evolutionary process from, well, I should say it's meant to evolve. It's meant to evolve. It's, it's meant to grow. Like, I'd like you to just think for a moment, just pause for a second, think for a moment, try to recall what are the earliest, what are your earliest memories of these days leading up to Christmas? What's your earliest memories associated with Christmas? How did you see it as a little boy? How did you see it? As a little, little girl, what were the sights and sounds and smells and emotions and memories that are associated with Christmas when you think back? Like for me, when I was pausing and reflecting, the first image that comes to my mind is this little uh, Christmas village that my mom would set up in the bay window of our family room when we lived in the house on Bradford Way in Hudson. And... Uh, this big ceramic, well, in my mind, it's very big, but it's probably like this big, but this big ceramic Christmas tree with these big little uh, Christmas light bulbs on the ends of these branches and 
setting up the fluff, the fake snow and the, the mirror that was the pond. And you put the little skating figurines on the pond. And, and it's the smell of, of cinnamon-scented pine cones. And it was the, the feeling of the tinsel, my, my dad's mom, that she would put all over her Christmas tree and feeling like the static electricity right, of the tinsel. You go into the, 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 their, their living room and you touch that and it would shock you, right? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, right? Or I picture my, my other grandma, her Christmas tree was a very small Christmas tree, and the, um, they had those, those ornaments, those old classic ornaments that had the, the bubbly lights. You know what I'm talking about? The bubbly lights in those ornaments. I think about that. I think about the um, um, Mannheim Steamrollers Christmas albums and the song Stile Nacht, their version of uh, uh, Silent Night which was, has haunted me since I was a little boy. It's such a beautiful rendition of that song. Like the sight and the sound of how, like all the ordinary things, that's part of why we love these days, because like everything that is ordinary suddenly becomes extraordinary. We decorate our houses in beautiful ways and, and neighborhoods that are just neighborhoods become totally illuminated with just beauty, right? Like. Gazing through the windows, you see lights flickering everywhere. Trees that were just trees are now decked out with just millions of little flickering lights, flickering flames. It was, it was magical, right? As a little boy, it was magical. Like, I saw Christmas, probably like most of us, most little kids in the Western world, we saw it through this lens of magic and wonder. Like the story of Santa Claus, right? And the whole imaginary world that that brings you into, the whole mythos of it, the, the, the Polar Express, and I'm dating myself here, but like Tim Allen's the, uh, Santa Claus, that movie there, right? Do you know what I'm talking about, that movie? Okay. That whole movie just, like it opened up the whole world of like, it's so much, there's such a bigger world than what you just see, right? It was a world of awe and wonder and magic and beauty and and my vision of it is like, you know, when you have a fresh snowfall and the pristine snow, just you wake up in the morning and the sun's coming in and everything is perfectly blanketed in beauty and snow. And, or think about how the light catches the, you know, when the ice gathers on the branches and like everything is crystal and everything is beautiful and everything is twinkling and it's just, everything is extraordinary, right? Everything is more than what it was. But as we age, as I aged as a little boy, right, life gets more complex. And as you're moving out of childhood and into adolescence and into those teenage years, like things change. Things change. Like you change. I changed. The, like we became capable of sinning and sinning in, in serious ways. And a hardness of heart can settle in and we can get jaded and we protect our hearts and we start building walls because we get hurt and it, it, we enter into this sort of this age of, of disillusionment and disenchantment and cynicism. That's, that's, we enter into that. We move out of this magical place of awe and wonder and beauty and everything is extraordinary to like you're just simply looking forward to Christmas break, right? And you somewhat grow embittered. Like I remember growing embittered Thinking about Christmas, thinking about these days, Advent days. Why? Because I couldn't have named it back then. But like looking back, looking at my own heart, like I was angry that the magic was gone. 
I was angry that the magic was gone. I, I, like, I didn't believe in Santa anymore. And like the whole mythos, the whole world of all of that, it was gone. Like the innocence was gone. That sense of awe and wonder and mystery and magic and all of that was gone. Like the pristine snow, it's like that gets replaced by the, the gross gray snowplow slush, right? Just blech. It changes. It all changes. And I think, I think many adults never really mature past that age of disillusionment and cynicism and being jaded, even, even Christians. And what, what so many try to do, especially when kids come along, is there's this attempt to see this season, like to recapture the magic by trying to see it through their eyes, like to recreate the magic for them, to recreate the mystery for them. And like there, in that, there's an attempt to recapture it for ourselves, I think, as adults. Like my parents went through extraordinary lengths for my, my brother and I to, to, to believe in that world. And so what, what do we do as adults? We, we listen to, we binge the Christmas, Christmas music because it's, it stirs the nostalgia. We watch the Christmas movies and the Hallmark channel is just, I, I don't know how Hallmark does what they do, right? Every year, 50 new Hallmark movies. Like, it's the same plot. I don't understand it. With the same B-list actors and actresses, I don't know. It's the same thing over and over again. But, like, the economy, Hollywood... All of it, department stores, all of it, it it's, they are parasitic. They're, they're, they're capturing, they're trying to capitalize on our hearts and our desires and our longings for this to be a beautiful, meaningful time. Like the word nostalgia, I don't know if you know this, I don't know if I've ever preached this, but the word nostalgia, it's, it's, it comes from the Greek. It's a compound word. Nostos and algos. Nostos and algos. Nostos means it's like the, it's, it's the, the return journey home. Think of Odysseus, right? Odysseus is trying to make his return home. He's making his nostos, his return home. And algos means pain. So nostalgia, it is the pain associated with the longing to go home. That's what the word means. It's the pain associated with the longing to go home. And right there, right there, is where the enemy has succeeded tremendously for people in the church and for people outside the church. Like, the enemy gets us to fix our nostalgic gaze backwards, to look backwards. And so we stay in this disillusionment phase because all we can really do is look backwards to when things were magical and when things were beautiful and life was simpler. And, and we ache for that time. We ache for the past and we get frustrated that there is no time machine that can bring me back there and we don't experience in the present now as adults like the mystery beneath it all. Like most Christians, I don't think ever pass deeply enough. They don't press deeply enough into their ache, into their hearts to ever enter into the third phase, which I'm going to call maturity. I really don't think most Christians take their hearts serious enough. I don't think most of us take our hearts seriously enough. It's the only thing that Jesus takes deadly serious, is our hearts. 
our hearts. So I don't think most of us pass into that phase of maturity. And this is, let me say what I mean. First, let me say what I don't mean when I'm using this word maturity. Like, I do not mean that Christian maturity or this Christmas maturity means like seeing this season as a really sweet and innocent, wonderful time for children and just getting over the fact that those days are gone for me because now I'm a grown up. Like, I'm a grown up. I just don't, like, don't be such a baby. Like, this is about other people. This is about other people. Don't expect too much out of this season. Don't expect too much out of Christmas. These are days you just got to kind of get through. Times with family. It's just you got to get through it, right? Get-togethers that are painful and sometimes triggering, right? Because hearts are hard. Just get through it all. Just grow up, right? Like, that's... That's what we tell ourselves. Just grow up. Stop longing for more. That's just not how life really is. That magic stuff, that's just, it never was real. That's not what I mean by maturity. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not how I'm using this word. By, by maturity, I mean this. Like, finally taking seriously, like, what this is all about. Like, the reality. Like, the very shocking reality of what's proposed to us at the heart of the faith, what's proposed at the heart of of Christmas. I I had in mind a a passage from C.S. Lewis. You're going to get two big C.S. Lewis quotes, so here's your first one. C.S. Lewis wrote this. Supposing we really found him, God, it is always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry. It's alive. And therefore, this is the very point at which so many draw back. He says, I would have done so myself if I could and proceed no further with Christianity. Why? Because an impersonal God, that's well and good. A subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness inside our own heads, that's better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap as best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, the husband, that is quite another matter. There comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who've been dabbling in religion, which is man's search for God, suddenly draw back, supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, Supposing he had found us. Here's, here's what I'm trying to get at. Like, suppose we, we stopped for a moment or stopped for a season and really pondered the proposed reality of the incarnation. It is the craziest thing that's been seriously believed by human beings in all of human history. The incarnation is the craziest thing that the majority of people have believed and taken seriously in all of human history, that God, 
the maker of the stars, the one who banged out the Big Bang, who, who circled Saturn with its rings, that God became flesh. The hunter, the king, the husband is looking for prey, looking for subjects, looking for a spouse. And it's you. It's you, the one, the one who came, the one who, who comes every day, hidden in on altars, the one who will come again. Like, I put it this way, like the one whose footsteps are really creaking down the hallway, to use C.S. Lewis's image, the one whose footsteps are really creaking down the hallway of your life approaching you, is, it's not the ghost of Christmas past who just wants you to, like, to merely be happy and have a holly jolly time this time of year. Like, that's not who's coming. The, the baby who showed up, the one who's lying in the manger, is not merely cute. Like, this is not merely a birthday. I was telling this to our fifth graders at my school earlier this week. Someone asked the question about, why do we give each other gifts on Christmas if it's really about Jesus' birthday? It's a kid who's thinking. I said, well, it's not really a birthday. This kid's a big World War II buff. It's kind of funny, 10 years old, loves World War II. Anyway, I said, Ben, I want you to think less of Christmas as Jesus' birthday and much more like June 6, 1944. It's D-Day. It's the invasion at Normandy. It's the second person of the Trinity landing on the beaches of creation, beginning an invasion. This is not merely a birthday. Like, what if we, like, what if we stop to ponder what it means that a Savior is born for us, right? On whose shoulder dominion rests, as the angel says. Then you got to ask the question, like, what does that really mean? What does it really mean that a Savior, a Savior was sent? What does it really mean that a Savior was born who came as a baby? Like, it means, if it means anything at all, it must mean that I am, that we are, as a race, in a predicament that's worse than we could possibly comprehend. Like, my prognosis from the heavenly oncologist is far worse than I can possibly grasp. Like, things are very, very not well with me and very, very not well with the world, and it's a nightmare, and, and my ability to do anything about it is it's absolutely nil. I, I, I've got nothing. Like, if a Savior was sent, it must mean that things are very, very, very bad. Very, very, very bad. And like, I'm not, you and I, I am not basically okay except for a few peccadillos, like a few bad habits, a few sinful hangups. I'm not basically okay. You are not basically okay. Yes, in your nature, you are good, but we are so wounded. We are so compromised. We are so not what we were meant to be. Right, the, the church holds up the Blessed Mother, the Queen of Heaven and Earth, right? The one who is clothed with the sun, wearing the stars as a crown, the moon under her feet. The church holds her up and says, this is what you were meant to be. Like, she's, she's not the aberration from the norm. She is the norm. She is what we were meant to be and what, by God's grace, we will become again. Like, she, if she isn't, then why is she our life, our sweetness, and our hope She's our hope because that's what we're meant to be. And if that's what we're meant to be, it's like, man, there is an infinite gulf between where I'm supposed to be and where I am. Like, if it's true that the God of the universe became flesh, that he chose to become flesh, not needing to become flesh, if he said, this is what I'm going to do, 
If a Savior was given, then that means that he was given for all, not just for some, which means he was given, he was given for me. Like he came for me. When I talk about Christian maturity, when I talk about Christmas maturity, what I'm saying is, like it means this, it means asking, like actually asking, why did you come for me? Not us, why did you come for me? Why do you want me? And the the answer better not be, and let's be honest, none of us could honestly even say this, and I'm sure none of us would say this, but the answer cannot be, well, because I'm really great and I'm really impressive. You should see my CV. You should see how many rosaries I pray. Like, I was spending time in adoration. You should have seen me, Jesus. I had my hands folded. I was kneeling. And you know I got that knee problem, right? Like, we, we know we're not basically great. We know that. Like, we know that all is not well with us. Like, when we're, when we're alone with ourselves, and there's no one left to impress, and no one left to inspire, and no one left to convince, like, we know, we know the stuff of which we're made. We know the stuff that we carry. We know our own story. We know the burdens we have. We know the darkness in our hearts. We know the things that nobody else knows about us. We know it. We know ourselves. We know it. And in addition to all of that stuff that we, we hold... Like, there's, there's the million and one ways that, that we have unknowingly hurt and wounded others, right? Re- like, reflexively reacting angrily or impatiently. Like, the careless words, the careless gesture, the careless facial expression. Now, we have no clue. None of us have any clue how we have, how we have contributed to the further breaking of this world and to the further breaking of people. Part of, the, part of time in purgatory, I'm convinced of it, is that we get to see it. We get to see how far the ripple effects went. That'll be a very sobering day for all of us. Here's, here's, here's what's needed. And it's, it's, a, it's a bitter pill. What's needed is great courage and honesty. Like, if we if we ever begin to let the Holy Spirit illuminate the depths of our hearts, the depths of our souls, the depths of our minds, if we really let the Holy Spirit begin to illuminate our lives, which I don't think we often are brave enough to do, but if we ever do that, when we do that, we almost always automatically get slammed by the enemy right then too. The enemy comes right into that moment and he's quick to accuse and to condemn and to fill us with, with shame and with fear and despair. And so what, what we do is we tend to, like we just don't look at ourselves for too long. We just can't bear it. We just can't stay in that. Like what we really need to see, again, Feast of St. Lucy, heal my vision, Lord. What we need to see is that the one who's lying in the manger is the same one who's on the cross. Like, it's, it struck me in my first year of priesthood, my very first Christmas, how we had this gigantic crash scene, this gigantic manger scene that was put out in the back of the church at St. Anne's in Cleveland Heights. This, it was huge. It was like life-size. And um, everyone would walk past, file past the manger scene. They would take their pictures in front of baby Jesus on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. And it's like almost 
like everybody just like forgot that there's a crucified man in the front of the church. Like the baby in the back ends up on the cross in the front. Like the manger, the wood of the manger, it, it's, it's the cross in seed form. Like the wood of the cross flowers into, the wood of the manger flowers into the wood of the cross. And the reason he came is because in spite of all of it, right? In spite of all of it that you and I have and are and done, and despite all of it, you're precious to him. <laughs> it, it's, it is that simple. Like you are precious to him. He came to take away the sins of the world, right? The Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what does that mean to any one of us? It means that he came to take, this, take away the sins of your world. To take away the sins of your world. Because you are precious to him. Like, what's lying in the manger, what's unfurled on the cross, is the Father's heart. It's mercy enfleshed. Christmas maturity, Christian maturity, it's, it's moving past the glitter and the cute. It's gazing at the Savior lying in the manger for me. It's letting that get really personal. It's, it's, it's also more than that. It's, it's, it's looking forward with that nostalgia. It's looking forward and realizing that the nostalgia that's stirred up in these days it's not a homesickness for the past. It's, it's a homesickness for the home that lies ahead of you. Like, remember when the Lord says, like, I will go and prepare a place for you. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. I will go and prepare a place for you. I'm getting a home ready for you. And so that where I am, you will also be. I will come and bring you to myself. This is how we cast aside that, that, that demon of disillusionment and that demon of cynicism and that demon of being jaded and just thinking that, that this is just, I mean, Christmas is just a tease for our hearts. It's actually looking forward in hope. It's looking forward in hope. Like the fulfillment of all our desire is what's lying in the manger. Okay, back to C.S. Lewis. Here's your second C.S. Lewis quote. This, is, this comes from, I think, if I can give you any homework, I think the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in modern times is, is C.S. Lewis's sermon that he preached in, on the campus of Oxford, The Weight of Glory, W-E-I-G-H-T, of glory. I don't see any of you writing it down. That's okay. I'll, I'll remind you. The Weight of Glory. It'll take you like an hour to read. You think I preach long? You should hear that guy. Okay. So C.S. Lewis says this, speaking about our desire, this ache, this longing that gets stirred up. In speaking of this desire for our, for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I, I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. That was me. 
in high school, in those early years of college, taking revenge on this nostalgia, this ache. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversations the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret, we, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both, we cannot tell it because it is, it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth, the poet, the writer, Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his past. But all of this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. Christian maturity, friends, Christian maturity is recognizing that the longing that these days awakens, it's, it's not silly, it's not childish, it's, it's actually quite serious. It's quite serious, and it's real, and it's not pointless, it's prophetic. Like, that longing in us is like, it's like iron filings, like deep in our soul being pulled by this magnet who is Christ. Like everything in us is looking for him. Everything in us is looking for him. Like the one, the one that your heart is looking for, the hope, the hope that's like too good to be true, that, that I can be saved, that I can be set right, that I can be made well, like that is what is lying in the manger. That is who is lying in the manger. And here's the craziest part. Like that same one will be just effortlessly given to you in just a few moments in the Eucharist, in this Mass. Like the Bethlehem babe is the Eucharistic Lord. Like the Savior, the Savior of the world, the Savior of your world. He's, he's the thrill of hope. So friends, tonight, as we gather as a body, as we gather as a community, I just want to invite us to ask for St. Lucy's intercession. St. Lucy, who, who cares a lot about how we see things, that she would pray for us, that we would really, really see what we are celebrating. Not just, 
this time of year. But like every day is Christmas for Christians. Because the incarnate Lord is always incarnating. He came, he comes, and he will come again. Amen.